The book of Habakkuk is one of those fascinating books that demonstrates for us some of the experience and struggle that this particular prophet went through in his time. And one of the reasons I find this book so helpful is that it involves an element of disappointment. This prophet had a sense of how things were supposed to go in his world, in his nation, for his people, and things did not seem to be going that way. In fact, things seemed to be going in a much worse direction than what Habakkuk had anticipated happening. I recall several experiences in life when I experienced um, an awareness that I had certain misplaced expectations. Misplaced expectations about what I thought that God was going to do. And this can happen all over the place for us. Now, of course, as good Presbyterians, we're not caught up in what we often call the health and wealth gospel, that if you just do the right thing, you'll get the money you need and your health will be okay. No, we understand that suffering is part of this journey. But in our hearts, we go through an experience of suffering or trials or pain. And deep inside of us, there's something that makes us feel like this isn't supposed to happen. Now, it's a normal feeling because I believe that as God created the world and reveals to us what he reveals in the opening chapters of Genesis with Adam and Eve and the creation of the world, the world was not created to be a place where sin and misery abound. And so one way to look at the way the fall affects the world is to realize this is not the way it's supposed to be. And Christ promises us he will make these things right. But even though we understand the issue of sin and the struggles of sin, it is inevitable that when suffering and trials come, we start to second-guess things. We start to wonder, what did I do? Or we start to blame other people for the problems that we're facing. In the book of Habakkuk, this is happening to Habakkuk because of the wickedness that had been evident in his country, among the Hebrews. So, this morning, what I'd like us to do is take a look at the way Habakkuk approaches life, the way he approaches his situation, and how he feels at the beginning of the book, and take note of how he, the transformation that happens to him by the time we get to chapter 3. And understand what is it about this experience with Habakkuk that we can learn for ourselves. What is it about this experience with Habakkuk that we can apply to our own lives as we navigate this journey of faith? A journey that often takes us into some very dark roads. A journey that, as Psalm 23 tells us, takes us into the valley of the shadow of death at times. So let's start off by looking at the, the big picture of the book. It's a short book. It's only three chapters. And it involves 
actually about three sections, and they're pretty closely divided by the chapters, though not exactly. And it structures like this. Habakkuk has a complaint, and we'll see that in the first four verses of chapter 1. And then God answers his complaining prayer in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1. And then Habakkuk, after hearing God's answer, as is typically the case when we pray for things, doesn't like God's answer. And he thinks it's a problem. And he thinks that God has overlooked something, and Habakkuk's going to point out to God why this can't be the case. So in chapter 1, verse 12, going all the way to chapter 2, verse 1, you have Habakkuk's second complaint. If you have a study Bible, it should have a break right there that says something like Habakkuk's second prayer or second complaint in verse 12. That goes all the way to chapter 2, verse 1. Then, in chapter 2, verse 2, and this runs all the way to verse 20, the end of chapter 2, is God's second answer to Habakkuk's prayer. And in chapter 3 is Habakkuk's final prayer. And in chapter 3, we'll see the transformation that takes place in Habakkuk. This is Habakkuk's journey of faith. I'd imagine that the struggle that he goes through right here, didn't, we can sit down and read this in a matter of moments, but the struggle he captures right here did not happen in a matter of moments. It happens over a period of time for him. And so as we look at this, I would encourage you to look at it as the journey of, as the journey of faith that God puts him through. Because one of the interesting things about the prophets, and this is true of any biblical character, it's not just that the prophets come with a particular message to speak to the people. It's also that God makes the prophet the message. Let me say that again. It's not just that they speak a message, but in their life they become the message. I'll give you an example outside of Habakkuk. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet why because he cried he wrote the book of lamentations he's lamenting over the destruction of the land each prophet is known not just for their message but how their message kind of shaped their life and that's true of Habakkuk as well Martin Luther has a quote that's one of my favorite quotes about the journey of faith when he says, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory but all is being purified. Your journey of faith is exactly that, the road that you're on as God transforms you. And inevitably, in our experiences, as we learn what God's teaching us at this particular time in our life, we are walking through something very similar that if we had the eyes to see, would see that God is at work to help us navigate whatever it is in front of us. So let's dig in, first of all, to Habakkuk's struggle and see what it is that he's complaining about 
and that he's frustrated with. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. This opening prayer, verse 2. How long, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. Those first few verses are describing the violence, the wickedness, and the destruction in his land. And he's looking out at it and he's saying, how can this be? In fact, some of our experiences right now may feel very much like Habakkuk. Verse 4, Habakkuk says, The laws paralyzed and justice doesn't go forth. How often in the past year have I looked across the city of Memphis and thought, what is going on here? Why is it that justice is not being established? Why is it, I didn't use the phrase like Habakkuk does, but the law seems to be paralyzed. I was driving down the road in Memphis in a subdivision, and a police car, an unmarked car, got behind another car and flipped on his lights because it had gone through a stop sign. That car took off, passed the car in front of it, and swerved back over on the other side from me and outran the policeman, and the policeman just stopped because we were in a subdivision at 30 miles an hour, and the car had to be going 70. And I thought in my head, what has happened culturally to make us think that it's okay to take off running from that situation in a neighborhood where they have signs everywhere our children are at play one of those kind of neighborhoods with bumps in the road with with, you know speed bumps Habakkuk uses the language the law seems to be paralyzed something has disconnected here because and notice his last phrase the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted now There's a lot we can look at about justice and the law, but what I want you to get is his experience. He is looking out over the land of God's people, the Hebrews, and he's saying, how can this be that God's people have lost their way? There's wickedness and justice, and God, you're not doing anything about it. Now, how often have I heard a prayer similar to that across our churches in the past few years or in other contexts? where we look at this in dismay. And so now, that's Habakkuk's complaint. His frustration is prayer, that God would do something about this. Well, God answers, verse 5 through 11, but the answer is not what Habakkuk wanted. And I would hasten to add, it would not be an answer any of us would want either. Verse 5. Look among the nations, God says. See, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. It's it's fascinating how God says often up front, you're not going to believe this when I tell you. Not real sure why I'm telling you this, because you're not going to believe it. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, that's another term for the Babylonians. I'm raising up these Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They are a bitter and hasty nation. Now, this is the nation that eventually topples the Hebrews. It is a wicked nation that was the world superpower at that time. God describes them as marching through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. 
They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might, their own power, is their God. Now you can see from God's answer that Habakkuk might not find that the most appealing answer. Because God essentially says, in response to Habakkuk's prayer about how wicked things have gotten in his land, God says, you know that nation you've heard about, the Chaldeans, Babylonians? They are coming. And they're going to march through your land too. And when they come, they are bringing the sword of my judgment against the people. But these Babylonians are violent and wicked people. And their power, their military power, their might is their God. They worship that. They idolize their own power. Let us see how Habakkuk handles this response. Verse 12, Habakkuk's second prayer, second complaint. Habakkuk, if I were to give you an outline of this, the first prayer that Habakkuk prays is Habakkuk praying like a judge. And we've all prayed like that at times. We pray that God would judge something, God would deal with something. And we pray like that because we feel like we're in the right sometimes. Habakkuk shifts out of judge mode into warrior mode. Habakkuk in verses 12 through uh, chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 1 is now praying as a warrior. He's going to defend God's people. He's going to stand up for what he thinks is right. And the person he's standing up against is the Lord God. So verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Now just pause and consider what he just said. He said, God, you're from everlasting. You're the Holy One. We can't die. We're your people. O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. And he's struggling. How can this be that this Babylonian army is going to march on your people? Verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, then drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet and rejoices in it and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes an offering to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Now, Habakkuk is, I think here, describing, again, that Babylonian army that Brent comes in with a hook and a net and they're living in luxury and rich with food. Are you going to let this continue to happen? Are you going to let this Babylonian empire march through the land and even kill your people? This can't be your plan. Now, in the best case scenario, Habakkuk is doing an Abraham where he's appealing to God to stop doing something, hoping that God hears him 
as God as Abraham would appeal to God or, or Moses as Moses would appeal to God but on the side of Habakkuk's own faith there's something else at play here and you can see it by a comparison of two verses that are actually uh, so if you take chapter 1 verse 4 and chapter 1 verse 13 I want you to pause and consider who is the wicked person that Habakkuk's talking about who are the wicked now look at chapter 1 verse 4 the law is paralyzed justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous now in that verse who's the wicked and who's the righteous now if I had it right it seems like he's praying about his own people he doesn't have the Babylonians on the horizon yet that hasn't been introduced into the story he's praying about his own people and he's saying to God as a Hebrew the wicked which are other Hebrews who aren't being faithful are surrounding the righteous and who's the righteous? Habakkuk and other faithful Israelites and so in chapter 1 verse 4 Habakkuk has a scale of righteousness and this is always a tricky thing but we all do it we do it subtly we do it overtly we have something in our heads let's say it's a scale of 1 to 10 and somewhere I'm up around an 8 or 9 I'm doing pretty good I'm here on Sunday morning at church I'm a Presbyterian you know my theology should be pretty good somewhere up on that scale I'm up there but some of the other people in some of these other churches I'm not so sure they're a little further down the scale and certainly the people around here that don't come to church they're much lower you know they're two or three depends on you know how good of a person they are that's what's happening in verse four there's a righteousness scale and Habakkuk's looking out at the Hebrews and saying God your people are wicked how can you let the wickedness of your people surround the faithful now look at chapter 1 verse 13 something changes I just I find this astounding because it's so typical of what we do God inserts the Babylonians into the conversation and says okay I'm going to judge I'm sending the Babylonians well Habakkuk's a smart fella he knows when the Babylonians show up with their swords they're not going to make a distinction between him and the unfaithful Hebrew they're all going either dying in the war or being carried away in the Babylonian exile so look at verse 13 God you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he now who you think the wicked are right here I think it's shifted now the wicked are the Babylonians and Habakkuk is saying why are you going to sit by when the wicked swallow up the man who's more righteous now who are the righteous it's not just Habakkuk I don't think based on what he's saying we shall not die we're your holy people the righteous are the, the Hebrews the temple the place where God dwells those are the righteous 
And so what Habakkuk's essentially saying is his scale has shifted. If he went to a scale of 1 to 10, he's now maybe bounced it up to a 20 or 30. So he's still pretty high on the scale himself because he's a prophet. His unfaithful Hebrews are somewhere over 10 because they're Hebrews. They live in the Holy Land. The wicked Babylonians are way down that scale, and so the nature of wickedness is shifted. So what is the problem with all this? Why would I take so long to point out the way he's using the term wicked and righteous? It's because anytime you get stuck on a scale of righteousness, you lose. You've stepped outside the gospel. God doesn't work that way. Even Habakkuk says, you are of purer eyes than to look on evil. There is no scale like that with God. God is holy, 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 holy. And we are all sinners. And so one of the things that God is teaching Habakkuk is that he cannot depend upon his own righteousness. He cannot depend upon his own faithfulness. He cannot depend upon the faithfulness of the Hebrews. He can only depend upon the Lord. Even in the darkest of moments that seems like God has left him. He must wait upon the Lord. And so this notion of wickedness and righteousness is at the core of the book. And it's at the core of the gospel. It's why Habakkuk uh, is quoted at least three times explicitly in the New Testament and maybe alluded to several other times. It's in this second answer from the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 2 is where it starts. And this passage becomes a prominent passage in the New Testament for the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Notice how God spends the time to remind him to be patient. To be patient for God to wrap everything up. Be patient for God to work these things out. And then the heart of this book is verse 4. And the way Paul uses this, the heart of the gospel in the New Testament is also verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up, It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, if you have a study Bible, there's there's probably a note beside verse 4 that points out to you that that passage is cited in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38, the three, three explicit times. Now, by, but for Paul to, to quote this passage... In Romans 1, 17. Romans 1, 16 and 17 are what we call the theme verses of the whole book of Romans. So what you essentially have is Habakkuk provides the theme verse for one of the most important New Testament books in the history of the church, the book of Romans. And at the heart of this book in Habakkuk is the gospel. And what do we mean by that? What do we mean that the gospel's here in the Old Testament? What do we mean that the gospel's here in Habakkuk 2.4? Well, God is outlining for Habakkuk two paths. There is a path of pride 
and there is a path of faith. The proud soul is puffed up. The proud soul is not upright within himself or herself. The proud soul depends upon himself or herself. But the truly righteous soul is not one who can measure their righteousness against other people, but one who lives by faith. One who lives by faith in the work of God, in the work of Christ. Those two paths are the two divergent paths in the journey of faith that we're constantly struggling with and wrestling with. The pride that wells up in our hearts or the faith to connect to whatever it is God's doing. Now, if we were going through the book over a period of weeks, we would spend some time unpacking that first part of verse 4 where his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. The nature of pride, I believe verses 6 through verse 20 is God's explanation of that prideful soul. In fact, if you spend time reading it later today, you can look at the structure of this if you have your Bible in front of you. It will probably, right after the introduction on verse 6, break it down into what looks like poetry with stanzas that you see, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own in verse 6. Then in verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town on blood. Then verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Then verse 19, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Arise and awake, to a silent stone arise. And then it, So those woes are the woes of pride. The way God looks at those who have constructed their own life and are trying to live out their own reality. And at the conclusion... God says, none of this will stand. There is no, verse 19, this stuff that's overlaid with gold and silver, all these idols, there's no breath in it at all. There's no hope. But verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So important. God's answer now leaves Habakkuk in silence. Silence is one of those marks of maturity in our life. It's not accidental that the wisdom books talk about holding your tongue and listening. It's not accidental that silence shows up at a point when transformation's about to happen because you just don't understand what God's doing and you move into the element of wisdom and faith. Think about it this way. Not just with Habakkuk and the silence that happens to him as God's in his holy temple. Look, at the beginning, Habakkuk had plenty to say, contending with God. And now that God shows up, let the earth keep silence before him. It reminds me of the prophet Isaiah. If you've read through Isaiah's prophecy, at least the first part, the first four or five chapters of the book, Isaiah's complaining about the wickedness in his land. And that complaining shifts in chapter 6. You know what happens in chapter 6 of Isaiah? It's when God gives him a vision of his holiness and his greatness. And Isaiah is overwhelmed and holds his tongue until God comes with the tongues and touches him and forgives him. It's a consistent pattern in the Bible. And so now Habakkuk has learned 
more of God and his nature and is silent before the Lord. And so this last prayer, I won't read through all of chapter 3, but I would encourage you to read it. If you have a study Bible, the study Bible would provide good notes. This prayer is a redemptive historical prayer. In other words, it's a prayer that moves through the history of God's work with his people. And what Habakkuk has done is he stopped focusing so intently on his current struggle, and he's backed away to see the grand scope of everything God's doing. Have you ever considered that in the course of your life whenever things get difficult and you feel like things are just really at a roadblock right now in your life and it doesn't make sense that you back up for a moment and go, wait a minute, I should consider what God's done all these years. How has he brought me to this place? How has he navigated my path to end up here? Does it seem like in this story he's actually watching out for me? Because Lord knows sometimes I don't watch out for myself. And so Habakkuk goes through all these things God did for his people and the salvation of his people at different times. And then he ends that prayer in verse 16 with these words, which are the exact opposite of the way this thing started out. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound rottenness enters into my bones my legs tremble beneath me yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us now consider the prophet who was contending with God and said this can't happen now says even though he's terrified both of God and the coming invasion he will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the Babylonians because he trusts in God. And the power of that passage in verse 4, Habakkuk 2.4, the gospel, is that Habakkuk now knows that his righteousness is not dependent on everything he's done, but by faith. And so that kind of righteousness will allow him to live through anything he faces. The bottom falls out, I have faith that God knows what he's doing. And if this is my time, it's my time. If this is what he has determined in the course of this land, I will trust him to guide us in the path that he intends. And so the power of the gospel at work results in these last three verses, verses 17 through 19. And this is, this is a prayer of wisdom. You see the, the movement. If the first one was a prayer of judgment and the second one was a prayer of a warrior fighting for his people, this is now a prayer of wisdom, a prayer of a resurrected faith. And that's why I titled this message Misplaced Expectations and Rediscovered Faith. Because anytime you go through a crisis like that, when you come out on the other side of it, the faith should be a rediscovered, deeper faith. It should be a faith that is grounded deeper because of the journey God has taken you on. And so notice Habakkuk's faith, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now let's pause, verse 17. Although this passage is used in very beautiful context, sometimes weddings, 
You know what verse 17 is a description of, right, now that we've looked at the whole book? If there are no fig trees blossoming, if there are no fruit on the vines, if the produce has failed and not coming, if the fields have no food, if the flock is done and there's no herd, the Babylonians march through the land. The land has been devastated by war. There's nothing there like it used to be. There's nowhere to turn to find a sense of home. There's nowhere to turn to find a sense of security. It's gone. And so what kind of faith do you have if that's what takes place? What, where's your faith in a moment where all that comes apart? There's only one place to go when you lose everything else, and it's to Jesus. It's to the Lord. And so Habakkuk says, verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength, and he makes my feet like the deer's. That's astounding faith. I look at this and think, if I had to go through something like that, I don't know what I would say, how I would handle it. None of us do. We've not faced anything of that magnitude. But the Lord promises through his gospel that he will be there for us in the most devastating of circumstances or in the most difficult of trials if we have the eyes to see, if we have the faith to trust. And I pray this morning that that's the kind of faith the Lord cultivates in your life. It's the kind of faith that can see through anything that comes along your journey. And that's why we have confidence in the gospel of Christ.